You're not a very clappy bunch. That's okay. I'm just sad to see the British influence still lingering <laughs> here in Africa. You'll see me wandering around. I'll be smiling because I will actually welcome your presence, not just pretend to welcome your presence. And, uh, and I will be grateful for you to welcome mine as well. Uh, I've got a few minutes and I, and I don't want to waste any time with introductions. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 2. And, uh, and, I, and I will just say this by way of transition. Uh, the good doctor has made very clear to us the stakes in planting churches. Um, everyone will be evangelized by something. They will have a worldview shaped by some reality. Uh, and they will adopt that worldview and then act accordingly. And so what is at stake, and, and I stand with him in his passion and his intensity, what is at stake is a continent. And so if for no other reason, Motivated by the grace and the goodness of God that has already been shared by Pastor Steve. Also being motivated by captivating the hearts of people by the good news of Jesus so that it's not captivated by something else. And so the question then is if we are called motivated, uh, drawn in by the mercy of Christ and the glory of the gospel uh, into planting churches, then what types of churches shall we plant? in one of the most diverse places in the world. I believe Paul gives us a beautiful blueprint here in the second half of the second chapter of Ephesians 2. And so if you would read with me, we're gonna start in verse 11, and I'm gonna read it all the way to verse 22, because the hearing of the word is transformative for the heart. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, hoping, having rather no hope, and without God in the world. But now, but God, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If we are indeed to plant churches, what manner of churches shall we plant? Pray for me, and I'll pray for you, and then we will examine God's word together. Father, we pray now for the grace of hearing, for the grace of receiving, not from a mere man because I am nothing. Please move me out of the way. Allow me not to be a hindrance in any respect for what you would have to say to your people here today. I pray that you quiet our resistance, that you quell our fear with the confidence of Christ, that you give us clarity to see what you have for us in your word today. We ask in the name of our glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said. Amen. All God's people said. Amen. There we go. America. Uh, 
I, I will not claim to have any intimate knowledge of apartheid. I've only examined it in books, seen it through the eyes of friends and uh, through the words of those who lived through it. I do have a parallel experience of that of Jim Crow law in the South in America, legalized oppression and segregation that created false demarcations between peoples of race and color and culture and creed and economics, something that God never intended. We know this from his word where he says in Genesis chapter 12 that all the nations of the world will be blessed through one man called to obedience. And we know the fulfillment of that blessing in Revelation chapter 7 when every tribe and every nation and every tongue stands around the throne of God worshiping him with the whole of their hearts. And so what we have between the pages of that promise and its fulfillment is the working out of the redemption that God has brought forth in the life and death of Christ Jesus and the application of that redemption into the hearts of the people who are called his people now living out the implications of what he has accomplished on the cross, no longer divided, but united as one moving toward one common glorious goal. And that is the fulfillment of the hope that he has instilled in us. And so, no, I have no intimate knowledge of it, but we would be fools to believe that though years have passed and governments have changed hands and laws have been rewritten, that the rippling effects of Jim Crow in America and the rippling effects of apartheid here in Southern Africa have not left their fingerprints on how we relate to one another and relate to the body of Christ, even as those who profess Jesus. The unfortunate reality of those ripples, whether it be intentional or incidental, it plays out in how we do ministry. It plays out in to whom we feel called. It plays out in the type of churches that we plant. I believe you would not be here if you did not long for more. But by what means will we get there? By what means will we detach the, the historic ripples that still try and impress their will on our mutual societies, on our mutual hearts. If there was a political decision that could be made, then the change would already have happened. If one great man were the source and the solution, then the change would already have happened. We've had great men. As a matter of fact, I've never been more inspired than by these words as Dr. Mandela, and I call him Dr. Mandela because he was truly one of the brightest minds of any generation. As he stated uh, in his trial in Pretoria, during my lifetime, I've dedicated myself to this struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. By what means could these words, and the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, which I've quoted often, ever find their fruition? It will not be through human talent. It will not be through 
organization. It will not be through political motivation. It will be through the gospel in God's church. When we decide as those who have been brought from death to life, as those who have been freed from the bondage of sin to now walk out its fullest implications. Paul has given us a beautiful blueprint here. We're just going to walk through it. I won't be before you long. I'll give you a few applications and then I'll be out of your way. The text is broken down into three basic Chunks, if you want to write it down, the first part is a description of the original division of humanity into two separate and mutually hostile groups. Now, of course, that is contextual here for Jew and Gentile, but it is applicable to all of the different demarcations by which we would find ourselves. He moves into a second section where he gives a description of the reconciling work of Christ. That's in verse 13 through 18. And then he closes these beautiful words by describing the new humanity that has come into being because of Christ's glorious work. Look with me again. Paul has laid out the motivation, laid out the accomplishment for new life. But as if to reinforce, and as he did through many of his letters, the necessity of letting go of ethnic divisions and economic separations and social demarcations, he doubles down to remind first these Gentiles exactly who they were. He says in verse 11, therefore, and what is the therefore, therefore? Right? To attach it to what's been previously said. So keep everything that Steve said in mind, and filter it through that one word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Just as he did at the top of the passage, he rebrands the state of the human heart, rebrands the, the, the former identity of these who now believe in Jesus. You see, sometimes we've got to look back to where we come from to know exactly how far we've come. That's why any present decision cannot be detached from previous history. And so he reminds them of several things. First of all, that at one time they were called the uncircumcision by those who had, were called the circumcision. A circumcision made, and he says this with specificity, made by hands in the flesh. So what he is describing is the present or the, the, the hostility that the Jews had toward the Gentiles, so much so that they described them by the lack of a covenantal mark that would identify them as God's people. You see, the Jewish people had a customary practice. You know this, your preachers and preachers' wives and ministers of the gospel, where they removed the foreskin directly after a child was born. And the removal of that foreskin was supposed to be a sign that they were now a part of the covenant people of God that they had been wrapped up into the grand narrative of God's redemptive history, that, that they were now a part of the promises that had been made to the patriarchs, to Adam, and then to, to Abraham, and, and, and all of the generations that would follow. 
And they used to identify the, the Gentiles, rather, as those who lacked that mark. And so for them, it was much deeper than lacking a mark. It was a, a description that you do not belong with us. You are not my people. My people bear a mark. My people are distinct. My people are in covenant with my God, and you do not belong. And that is precisely how the Jews treated them. Paul is reminding them of their former state when they were at one time separated from Christ. Why? Well, because what verse 1 says, they were dead in their trespasses and sins, walking in a manner according to the course of the world, following the power of the prince of, of, of the glory of this world and not the glory of God. They were separated from him, having no intimate knowledge of him, no intimate access to him, not caused to be in union with him. Not only were they separated, but they were alienated. Alienated from what? Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Again, they didn't bear the mark, so they did not belong. They were seen as less than. And not only alienated, but strangers to the promise. It was a unique choice of words that Paul chose there. You see, God throughout the Old Testament made promises to his people, promises of sustenance, promises of protection, promises of intimacy, promises of knowledge, promises of authority, promises of longevity, promises of fruitfulness. And Paul uses this word here to describe how devoid, these Gentiles were from the knowledge and understanding of their promises. They were strangers. They were not acquainted with them. They had never met them. They had never been infiltrated by them. They had never been associated with them. They had no context or understanding of what it meant to live under the enveloping promises of God. They were strangers. And because of those things, because of their former state, they had no hope. They had no hope. This is the status of any and all who are still outside of Christ. Hopeless. Hopeless. I know it'll be a bit of an aside, but I remember going to Cambodia several years ago. Cambodia has a special place in my heart, Southeast Asia does, uh, namely because they treat me like a celebrity there. Uh, there's not a lot of black people and I'm twice as big as everybody there. <laughs> so streets just clear at my presence. It is a, it's a beautiful way to live. <laughs> but I remember being there And we were ministering the gospel. And I got done preaching, and, 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 and I mean preaching, you know, e with even more intensity than I'm preaching now. You know, I, I give at the level I receive. So, you know, you're getting like a six right now. <laughs> you're getting like a six. If you want it on 10, you've got to, you got to raise up your level. Okay, you're listening to an American black guy who's young, not an old Brit who's <laughs> white. So you got to... Yeah, that's right. I said that. <laughs> and I've just preached my guts out. And I'm sweating. And I'm feeling good. And like 200 people came up to the altar to be prayed for, to receive Jesus. And I'm like, Lord, we had us a good night. And at the end, this... This little thing, little old thing. She's about 14 years old. She pulled me aside. And she said, 
What is this hope that you speak of? And so I went into preacher mode. I'm like, well, you're hoping Jesus. Yeah, I'm just, the blessed Lord, he will deliver you. You know, I was just, and, and she says, no, 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 no. The word, what does hope mean? The state of her soul. so strange in its relation to the covenants and promises of God. The state of her world so shattered and mired with sin and brokenness that she didn't even have a definition for the word hope. I had just spent 60 minutes preaching with a translator, thinking, presuming that the starting place was explaining how Jesus brought hope, when in reality, it was explaining what hope was in the first place. This is the gravity with which Paul lays out the state of these Gentiles in their former existence. He ties it together rather nicely. He, he's, he's laid out how the Jews viewed them. He laid out their status, strangers and alienated and separated and hopeless. And, and he sums it up in one phrase, without God in the world. You didn't even know he existed. And then we have those two beautiful words. But now, but now, through Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, meaning in union with him. Pastor Steve covered that beautifully, this, this mind-numbing idea that somehow this filthy rag of a man because of the sacrifice of Jesus, I'm now in union with him, sharing in the same love that the Father has for him, he has for me. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were once far off, once alienated, once strangers, once lacking the mark that would identify you as God's people have received the mark of the shed blood of the lamb laid out in his sacrifice on the cross, now identifying you not only as God's people and with God's people, but in union with the living God himself. Through his sacrifice, you have been brought near. Now sit on that just for a minute because it sets up the argument that Paul will move to in the second section. And so why don't we, why don't we place a question there? Can we do that? Since all of this is true, since you one, once lacked the mark that would identify you as God's people, I'm speaking to you, me. Since, since we were once strangers to the commonwealth of Israel, once 
alienated and separated and strangers to the covenantal promises of God, of his, of his peace and of his goodness and of his holiness and of his power and of his protection since we once lacked those things and we wandered around the world without God in the world, not only not knowing where hope came from, but not even able to define what hope is, but Jesus in his goodness, God in his magnanimous love, not because we deserved it, has marked us with the blood of Christ and brought us into his family. How could we, under any circumstances, continue to exist in a spiritual state while being bound by man-made demarcations? How? You know what one of my favorite parables is? The parable of the wineskins. Mainly because I really like wine. It's Acts 29 after all. It's just kind of what we do. That's a joke. I don't even drink. You know black pastors can't drink. Our congregation don't let us get away with that. I look, at, I look at white pastors like, tell me about it. What was it like to have a drink with your elder and a congregant? Brothers just be trying to snag an old duel sometimes. They ain't even got no alcohol in it. Is that a beer? No, this is old duels. Smell like beer to me. I'm sorry. I love that parable says you can't put old or, or, or new wine in the old wineskins. Is it not applicable here? Do I need to make it plain? How, how can we walk that backpacking? I'll make a transcultural illustration because black people don't backpack neither. <laughs> how How do we find ourselves backpacking into the new covenant of God carrying old demarcations and stereotypes? Are we even authentically Christian at that point? Are we truly covenant people at that point? Or have we just adopted a system of belief and conformed it to our normative way of living? I'm just asking questions. Just asking questions. It is that pregnant pause between Paul's very graphic description of what we once were. to the sheer accomplishment of Christ. It's not to belabor the point, I'm gonna press on here. And so he says, based on all of these things, it's an argument inside the argument, this same Christ who has now marked us by his blood as God's covenant people, he himself is our peace. That word peace there, its specific connotation is reconciliation. Not peace like you're not going to have any drama in your life. Not peace like peace out. No. It It is specifically directed to reconciliation. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Now, who's the subject matter here? Well, contextually, we know it's Jew and Gentile. It's Jew who believes 
and Gentile who believes, coexisting in proximity, but not living as family. Did you hear what I said right there? Coexisting in proximity, but not living as family. And so they need a reminder. Jesus, the same one who marked you now as God's people in your Jewishness and your Gentileness, and if we want to roll Colossians 3 into this, in your, bar, in your barbarianness and in your Scythianness and in your slaveness and in your freeness, and if we want to roll the end of Galatians into this, in your womanness and in your maleness, you've all been marked now as God's people. That same Jesus is our peace. He is our reconciliation. He is the one that removes the backpack so that we can step into the new covenant completely unfettered by old definitions. He is our peace. And why does he have to be our peace? Well, because he knows we like to hold on to stuff. He knows. And so he explains to us then what has taken place. He himself has made us both one. He has grafted us into one people. We are one people. Family. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I shared this uh, maybe last night. I can't remember. The days are rolling together now. Uh, but in the first century, at the temple where God was worshipped, there were two courts. Two courts. It should sound familiar. In America, there were two entrances, two swimming pools, two water fountains, two school buses, two schools, two neighborhoods. There were two courts. And in one, the Jews worshipped. And then there was a literal wall. And in the other, the Gentiles worshipped. And inscribed upon that wall, history has it, were the words, pass this wall upon threat of death. A Gentile could literally be killed. A narrative should sound familiar. For passing into the temple, or the court rather, of the Jews. There was a literal dividing wall of hostility, a physical structure that maintained their societal distinction, though they said they worshiped the same God. And Paul plays on that physical reality and and moves it to what it actually represented in a spiritual and, and psycho-emotional sense. And he says, Jesus, in his body of flesh, meaning in his death on the cross, in the shedding of his blood, in the sacrificial decision that he made, in the triumphant resurrection that followed, Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility. And if I may, if I may impress something upon my brother Paul, and, and now you are standing on either side of where the wall used to exist, looking suspiciously at what's supposed to be your brother. This cannot be. This cannot be. No, the, 
The church is supposed to be the new humanity. New humanity in the, the singular sense that as Corinthians has described that we have been made new, that the old has passed away. But new humanity in the collective sense that what once used to define and describe us primarily has become secondary. As such, I don't stand before you primarily as a black man. I'm a Christian man who God saw fit to paint a beautiful hue that you will spend hours in the sun trying to achieve. <laughs> I tell this to my wife all the time. She's like, come to the pool with me. I'm like, I don't need the tan. That's your problem. Sorry. <laughs> That's my primary description. One who is no longer alienated, one who no longer needs to bear a mark of circumcision, one who is no longer separated, one who is no longer stranger, one who has a prevailing hope. Oh yes, and because God is creative in all his ways, he made me this hue and made you that hue and made him that hue. It is the full breadth of his creative genius. But it is not my primary descriptor. The new humanity unburdens me from making my ethnic identity the sole way that you see me. Because just as the Father sees Christ when he sees me, he should see, I should see Christ when I see you. Listen, we're running short on time, and so I'm going to press on. It says, he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Meaning that he has known them, meaning that we don't need to follow the law anymore. We follow Christ because he's fulfilled the law. And he says this again. It's a beautiful refrain. That he might create in himself one new man in place of two. You know, the Greek there actually more accurately translates one new tribe. One new tribe. You think about that for where we are presently. That we are one tribe with one God. Not many, with one God. Paul goes on and says that he also might reconcile us both, both of us, to God in one body. That body being what? The body of Christ, the church. That this would be the locus of the new humanity. I'm going to come back to that. Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In the remainder of the chapter, he describes the interaction of this new humanity with God and with one another. Through the apostles and the prophets, Christ has preached peace to us. Those who are far off and those who are near. And through him, we have access to the Holy Spirit and to the Father. And so we're no longer aliens, verse 19, and no longer strangers. But we are fellow citizens, united tribe members with the saints, and members of the household of God, the family of God. We don't have time by any stretch of the word, but start in Genesis and work your way to Revelation and you will see one narrative that God's desire is to form a family for himself from all people. It is the narrative of scripture. And Paul brings that language to bear right back here again. 
that through him we are members of the household of God, the family of God, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone or the one that holds it all together. And he ends this way. And it just sat with me today in a way that it never has before. In verse 22, he says, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is heresy, they'll stone me afterwards. But I don't believe that we can fully experience the Spirit of God unless we are experiencing him in communities that embrace the full full breadth of his creative genius. We cannot. How can I say that? How can I be so bold in saying that? Because Paul just said that we have been joined together, grown together into a holy temple in the Lord. Who's been joined together? Who's been grown together? Is it not those formerly alienated from one another, formerly defined by their ethnic identity rather than their Christocentric understanding of who they are? And so then, if that is true, then how can we be an adequate home for the Spirit of God if it is built off of our preferences and prejudices and not off of the hope of Christ. What type of churches will we plant? That is the question at hand. The dividing wall is gone. The inscription has been incinerated by the glory of Christ. Will we stand on opposite sides of where it once existed and look on with suspicion and say, no, we can't be family because we don't like to worship the same way? It's uncomfortable to sing those songs. I can't be in submission to that type of authority. Or will we be the locus, the locus of God's work, the one body built through the cross, the home of reconciliation? where hope is not only defined, but given expression through God's new people. My challenge to you today is to figure out what it means for you, for your context, for your people, as we have done our very best in the city of Atlanta to plant transcultural churches. Churches that have not only intellectually embraced the words of Paul and not only emotionally assented to the words of Paul, but have determined that every decision and every song choice and every leadership appointment and every hire and every internship and every idea and every thought and every elder and every deacon, that every action will run through the grid of creating the types of communities that he here has described. We live in a globalized world. And there are very few places left in the world uninfluenced by another. Let culture fight 
reinforce individuality and demarcations. Let the church be the upstream wave that becomes so irresistible that they eventually relent. I'll leave you with this little definition. It's not perfect by any means. This is what it means to be a transcultural community, to create a transcultural community. They're going to put it up on the screen for you as well. It's an understanding that every human being is endued with the Imago Dei, the image of God, captured in unique cultural and ethnic expressions, which embody the full breadth of God's creative genius, not to be subverted to the ethnic cultural identity and preference of, of another, but rather celebrated in creating a fuller expression of our humanity, a woven tapestry of color, culture, and class as God forms a family, a people for himself from all people. Those are the types of churches that will change the world. And so as those now marked as God's people by the mark of his blood, the question is, what are you willing to give up of your preference, of your prejudice, of your fear to see those types of churches planted? Here's how we're going to end this moment. The band's going to come up and just play five minutes or so, however long the pastor of the house decides. And we're going to pray and we're going to repent. And we're going to ask God for help in cultivating this vision. Because this is no small task. I could, I could tell you stories. Our church in Atlanta, is, it's about 1,100 people. It's about 45% white, about 45% African American, 15 to 20% Indian and Hmong and Chinese and Korean and everything else. And yet we still have massive hurdles. Last fall we lost... 120 people over this very issue. People who had been with us for a long time, people I had done their weddings and, and, and you know, uh, dedicated their children because, you know, we don't baptize children in biblical churches. And, <laughs> and, and people who, <laughs> I'm actually Presbyterian, but that's a whole other conversation. People, people who I had walked with and struggled with and cried with uh, people whose parents I had led to faith. And they left over this issue. Because though Jesus had broken down the dividing wall of hostility, they reconstructed it in emotion and preference. It's not easy. But you tell me where it says in this book that following Jesus was ever going to be. Let's take some time to pray. Just bow your heads. Ask the Lord what he wants from you with regard to this. And then pastor will come up and close our time.
So, Father, just thank you for your word. Double-edged sword cuts through our defenses, through our hard hearts, through our years of objections, through our cultural narratives. And it leaves us exposed and vulnerable, but loved in Christ Jesus. Lord, I just think of Romans 8, just speaking of creation, crying out in futility, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. And Father, some of the groaning that we see in this part of the world is the groaning of hostility between peoples. It's part of the fall. So it's part of our sinful nature. I pray that you supernaturally, maybe in this moment, would ignite something that would lead to the revealing of the children of God in this land and on this continent. That we would start to see churches not not gathering together under tribe or tongue or nationality or race. But gathering under the banner of the gospel and the good news of the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. We've got a long way to go. But with the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, I believe you can do something that will make the rest of the world look in and desire your son. Start that work in us now. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Leon, thank you, brother. Thank you. Thanks.